Welcome to the teaching ministry of Temple Baptist Church. While we hope you can join us in person, our prayer is that this message will encourage you to love God and serve Him in a deeper way. Well, good morning, everyone. Great to see you on this long holiday weekend of Thanksgiving weekend. I want to say thank you so much for Tiffany and Matt uh, for leading us this morning. Very nice to have you guys here. They're here on vacation and we put them to work. So uh, thank you so uh, very, very much. Hey, if this is your first time with us or the first time in a long time, again, we just want to say thank you for sharing part of your weekend with us. Uh, My name is Donald and uh, I'm one of the pastors here. I can hardly believe it, but actually four weeks ago, we began this new journey that we've been on studying the life of David. It's been a month. And and for me, it just seems like we started it uh, last week. David is such an intriguing person to study. Uh, I certainly understand why people have been fascinated uh, by his life over the years. You wouldn't think that someone who lived over 3,000 years ago that you and I would be able to relate to. But we have found that we're so much alike. So if you have your Bibles this morning or some kind of a smartphone that you can follow along, uh, turn to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 20. 1 Samuel chapter 20. Do you know why I I personally find David so intriguing? Because I feel like he's the kind of guy that you can invite into your home, put your feet up on the coffee table, snap open a can of Coke, and compare failures with. I I don't know, there's something um, that does my heart good to know that a man who carries the label of a man who sought after God's heart has as many problems as I do. Misery loves company, that's for sure. I mean, there stands David, both in a a shepherd boy's clothes and uh, the royal robes of a king, and we can relate to every bit of his life. What a roller coaster ride of a life he lived. More ups and downs than the stock market has. And yet, through it all, we are fascinated by his life. A couple things that we have learned over the last month. One is you can spit polish yourself. You can make yourself look really, really good. Shine it up, glisten and glitter. So that, the, uh, that our friends and the world look at us and go, man, he's got it all together. And one of the things that we discovered is that actually God looks far beyond the veneer. He actually looks down deep into the core of men and women. We also looked at what, what do you do when you got a giant breathing down your neck? We also looked at how the, the picture of David and Goliath, how it just painted this incredible picture of what really Jesus has done for us. How David stood in the gap for Israel, they were cowering in fear, and then there's Jesus who comes along and he stands in the gap and faces our biggest giant that you and I had, that giant of sin. And he conquered it. And he shares with us the, the spoils of victory. And then last week, we looked at that whole idea that what happens when your dreams don't come true? What happens when your life seems to be falling apart? What we discovered is that you can, you can trust God. You can trust God. We said it over and over again. You can trust God because he is always working behind uh, the scenes of your life. And until Jesus is all you have, you'll never know that Jesus is actually all you need. We looked at that last week. Well, in 1 Samuel chapter 20, what we're gonna be discovering is that King Saul actually has had it. He is fed up. 
He's fed up with his son, Jonathan. He's fed up with his daughter, Michael, because they are always giving David a heads up. See, Saul is always trying to catch David, arrest him, and kill him. And every time he gets in that mindset, his son, Jonathan, or his daughter, Michael, David's wife, is always giving David a heads up and he gets away. And we're about to look at a story where actually Saul loses it with his son Jonathan. In fact, he says some very, very nasty things to his son Jonathan. I don't know if you've ever, you know, been around the supper table and one of your kids just pushed you to the limits and you said something that you went, oh, I wish I hadn't have said that. Well, that's what happens here, except I don't think Saul has any regrets as to uh, what's happening. So let me just uh, paint you the picture before we read what's happening. Here we have Saul at the family dinner and, and supper time, the supper meal was, was uh, something really big in this day and age. And all the family, all the royal family comes and they gather around the table with, at the king's table. It's customary, there's a chair for everybody. And um, the first night that the family is all together, there's an empty chair, the empty chair is David. I mean, David, remember, is the son-in-law to the king. He's married to the daughter. His son is actually, Jonathan is actually David's best friend. He's the commander of, in, in the army, Saul's personal bodyguard. And there's a, there's a chair at the table. Saul doesn't say anything. But then there's day two. And um, Saul is chomping down on his fried chicken. And he notices that the, the chair is empty again. And he asks his son, Jonathan, Hey, do you know where David is? You know what Jonathan does? He lies. He tells his father a bold-faced lie. And Saul picks up on it. And Saul picks up on it and says, you're a liar. In fact, let's pick up the story that, what, that we're talking about. In 1 Samuel chapter 20, let's look at it. It's found in verse 30. 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 30. It says, Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan and he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. I don't know if Jonathan's mother was sitting at the table or not. <laughs> but I have this funny suspicion, Saul sleeping on the sofa tonight, okay? He says, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send and bring him to me, for he must die. You continue to read the story and you find it. Jonathan just storms out. He tries to reason with his father. There's this big argument at the supper table and Jonathan just storms out. He's had enough of his father's. It's like his father has gone berserk. In fact, what happens is David is in hiding at this time. Jonathan knows exactly where he's hiding. And, and, and Jonathan goes to David and he says, David, I, I've tried everything. I, I've tried everything to reason with my father, but he's gone off the deep end. He's, he's become psychotic. I don't know what's wrong with him. My suggestion, David, is that you get out of here. You leave town. 
under the cloak of darkness. In fact, you may want to leave the country because he has so many connections with law enforcement in every town. He is determined to find you, track you down, and kill you. And he is not going to give up. There's no time to go home and say goodbye to your wife. There's no time to pack uh, your suitcase. No time to get supplies ready. Just run. I'm telling you, David, run for your life. And that's what Jonathan has told David. Saul is just, he's so afraid of David. He's so insecure when David is around. Now just imagine for a moment, would you? Just for a moment, you put yourself in that place. You put yourself in David's shoes. I mean, here's a man who has served his king, the man, his father-in-law, faithfully. He's been extremely loyal. What do you begin to think? What do you begin to think? Maybe you begin to think, why, like, why am I being treated this way? Like, why is he treating me this way? You can only imagine, you can only imagine that David, somewhere in all of this, is feeling stressed out, frustrated. The tension is in the air. He feels abandoned, angry, lonely, fearful, disbelief. He's been rejected. I mean, all these emotions are running through. Remember, he's still a young man. He's like 22, 23, 24 years old. And we find now he's on the run of his life. And yet he has been faithful. He's been true to the king. Shouldn't true and faithful subjects get rewarded? Shouldn't those who follow God with their whole heart get a break from heartache? It seems like it's a reasonable question. Let me ask you a question. What do you do? What do you do when the stress level is bearing down on you? What do you do when you feel the tension in the air? What do you do when you feel abandoned? What do you do when you feel so lonely? What do you do when you feel so fearful? I tell you what we do. We panic. We panic when those feelings of insecurity, fear, loneliness, abandonment, disbelief wraps us around. And when you panic, you do some very irrational things. In fact, we're gonna discover that David panics and he does something so irrational. For a wise man, you think, why would anyone do that? Because when we are fearful and lonely and stressed out, we panic. And when we panic, boy, we can do some very irrational things. Everything that we've ever believed in, we throw out the window. We throw out the window. And David does something very irrational. You begin to read this story, actually, and you begin to wonder, David, 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 stop, stop. Like, just recall some of the things that you have written. Like, David, stop panicking. Remember those words that you wrote, that God is your refuge? Remember that? Hold on to that. Remember you said God is your strength? God is your tower of refuge? 
that you know, God's your protector, that God is your provider. Remember you writing those things? Remember you said that you will fear no one because God's on your side? Remember when you wrote those words, though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil? What happened to that, David? I mean, it's just a few chapters before. I mean, he's confident and he's bold in the things of the Lord. And now David has, is just gripped with fear. And he does some very irrational things. He abandons everything that he believes. Everything. Let me ask you, what do you do when you're gripped by fear? Do you abandon everything that you believe? I think that question could be asked of us. I mean, I don't know what season of life you're in right now. I don't know if you're on the verge of making a decision where everything you've ever believed to guide your life, you're ready to throw it at the window because you have been gripped by frustration and fear and anxiety and stress. Oftentimes, we feel that way because we honestly feel that God is not doing his part. He's not doing his part. And we get gripped by these fears. And you know what we do? That's when we, 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 we fall into this mode of compromise. That's what we do. Sometimes we compromise our morals because we're so fearful, feeling so lonely. Sometimes we compromise our ethics. Everything that we believe, we just kind of throw it through the window. Sometimes we compromise our honor, our reputation, because we're so fearful. And in this narrative that we're gonna go back to in just a minute, it, it, the, you can feel the tension in the air. The sh I should almost have some music from Gladiator or Braveheart playing as we read through this. I mean, there is so much tension in the air. Hollywood scripts couldn't write as good as what's happening right here in the story we're about to read. So let's pick up the story in chapter 21 and verse 1. Now remember, David's on the run of his life. We're going to find out where he goes. It says in, in verse 1, David went to Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest. Ahimelech trembled when he met him, David, and asked, what? Why are you alone? Why is no one with you? Like, David comes, unannounced, knocks at the door. I don't know if it's under the cover at night or not. I think he's, he's checking over his shoulder where, at the door. I think he's all sweaty. I think he's tired. He probably looks like he hasn't slept in a week. And he arrives, and the priest says, You, you come on your own? Like, David, you're a captain of an army. Like, Where's the army? Where are the people that you travel with, David? You know what David does? He lies. Because sometimes that's what we fall into. When we feel trapped, and we're fearful, and we're angry, and we're frustrated, and we feel alone, and we feel abandoned. He lies. He lies to the priest. Read it. In verse 2, David answered Ahimelech, the priest, 
The king charged me with a certain matter and said to me, no one is to know anything about your mission and your instructions. As for my men, I've told them to meet me at a certain place. So he's trying to play it off. But the priest knows this is not, this is not normal for David to show up like this. I've, I've never seen this before. And so, David lies. And I am sure, I am sure as a little boy, David was drilled in his head, commandment number nine of the Ten Commandments, do not lie. You know he knows that truth. But he's willing to compromise it because he's fearful. He feels all by himself. David lies, and let me tell you something. This lie is very costly. This lie has a major ramification. This lie is actually going to cost someone's life. All because David lied. Now, let's look at what happens right after that. In verse 3. He says, now then, he's talking to the priest, this is David, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. So you can imagine Ahimelech, okay, let me get this straight. You come under the cloak of darkness. You come unannounced. You have no army with you. You're traveling by yourself. You, you're, the, you're the king's son-in-law. You sit at his table and you come here and you tell me you're hungry. David, this, I, I'm sure he's got to be thinking, this doesn't add up. You're hungry. And so the priest, we won't get into all the details, but he actually does offer him some bread. It's holy bread, and that's for another discussion of the time, but he actually gives David uh, some bread. So David lies to get fed. Remember, this is the guy who writes, oh, in you, Lord, I trust you're the one that provides for me. That's the same guy now who's just lied to the priest. And then, look at verse 8. David asked Ahimelech, Don't you have a spear or a sword here? I haven't brought my sword or any other weapon because the king's business was urgent. Okay, seriously. You've you got to know Ahimelech's thinking, okay, I know I've had a lot of theological training, and I know that you probably think I'm just so heavenly minded that I'm no, I have no earthly common sense. But David, you're the captain of an army, and you come with no weapon. You're, you're Saul's personal bodyguard, and you're traveling with no weapon. No army, by yourself. You look like you haven't slept in a week. No weapon, no food. And the, and the king has sent you on a mission. Something, something's not adding up here. But Ahimelech says, well, actually, we do have one weapon. One sword. And you'll never guess whose sword it is. It's the sword of Goliath. Goliath's sword has been stored at the priest's house. So now there's David. Okay, there's David. I mean, he's in a panic. You know he's in a panic. 
And all of a sudden, a sword is put in his hand. And David is about, David is about to come face to face with his past. I can only imagine all five of his senses are going. Because when that sword is put in his hand, you know he's got to be remembering back when I was 15, 16 years old. I can remember the sounds of two armies getting ready to battle it out. I remember the smell of that valley. I remember looking around and seeing and hearing. And, and there it is. It's, it's placed in his hands. Can you imagine what has to be going through David's mind? Can't you just picture him remembering what it was like as a 15-year-old, 16-year-old, fearless, fearless, as he takes on the giant? He's got to be remembering the story when he said, shout out to Goliath, you come with me with a spear and a shield and a sword, I come with you in the name of the Lord. He's got to be remembering that. All those things are going through his mind. You would think, you would think at that moment when the sword is in his hand, David would just stop and go, what, what am I doing? What, what am I doing? Why am I running? You begin to think, David, where's that faith you once had? Where's that confidence? And David has given this visual aid to remind him of God's power. And it doesn't seem to affect him. And this part of the story is the part of the story that we will remember forever because this decision of David is a decision that will have a mighty cost. Because you know what David does? The same thing you and I do. We get lonely and fearful and abandoned. We take matters into our own hands. Obviously, God's not going to be a part of this. I'll take things in my own hands. And I'll make something of this. And David is actually going to put his safety in a sword. Like, just think how flawed his thinking is. All of a sudden, his whole safety net is going to be this sword. And boy, there's going to be some serious consequences for it. You know, sometimes I read this story and it sounds a lot like me. I, it may sound a lot like you too. When we need him the most, we take things in our own hands. And oftentimes we regret it. I mean, I don't know how many right now, right now, are in a place where maybe you're, you're just on the verge of making a very, very bad decision. And I want you to ask yourself this question. If I make this decision, who is it going to affect? Because guaranteed it will affect more than you. In fact, I tell you who it will affect. The most are the people that you love. 
and the people that love you the most. That's who it will affect. And David is going to make a very poor decision. This is how we think. This is how I think. Sometimes I get trapped in this. If God were with me, this would not be happening to me. That's how we think. Some, somehow we've got trained to think that, you know, as a follower of Christ, it's always good. Even though Jesus himself said, hey, listen, you're going to have some troubles come your way. Guaranteed. But we get shocked. We say, this couldn't be happening to me unless God has abandoned me. I had a very dear friend of mine, very dear, a very close colleague, a pastor friend of mine called me on a Wednesday afternoon at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. I picked up. I knew who it was. I saw it on the caller ID. I was excited to talk to him. I picked it up. His first words were to me, Donald, God has abandoned me. I said to my friend, no, no, that, that's actually not true. That's, that's not true. Don't you believe that? Pastor friend of mine says, no, actually, this time it's true. He has abandoned me. And I remember thinking how haunting those words were to actually believe that God would abandon you and leave you on your own. Until we know that Jesus is all that we need, we'll never know that Jesus is all that, or until we know that Jesus is all you have, we won't know that Jesus is all that we need. When things are going great, isn't it easy to come here on a Sunday morning and raise our hand and shout hallelujah and amen and praise because life's going well. It's so easy to get involved and start serving. But when the things that we value so much begin to slip through our fingers and we, we've just lost control, it gets a little harder, doesn't it? It gets very hard. And we do what David did. Lots of times we just begin to panic. We panic and we say, okay, I got to start taking things. I got I to gotta start taking charge. I got to things in my own hands. Remember I said to you that when you panic, you, you do just irrational things. And I said that David was going to do something very irrational. Well, David does. David leaves the home of the priest. Okay, he's been fed. He's got a sword. And guess where David goes? You can't make this stuff up. I'm telling you, it's right in the Bible. He goes to the Philistines. Now, if you remember just a couple chapters earlier, David is fighting the Philistines. David took down their superstar. And that's where David runs to. He runs to the Philistines. Oh, it even gets, it gets better than that. Not only does he run to the Philistines, he runs to the city of Gath which happens to be Goliath's hometown. Now who, rational thinking, is going to go to the hometown where, and see the billboards and the posters of their national hero and him show up and say, I'm the one who took him down. And not only that, he comes with his own sword. You understand what I'm saying, how sometimes we panic, we do irrational things? There's David. That's so irrational that he would go to the enemy's line, go right to the city of Gath with Goliath's sword. And he does. And he's brought before the king. 
And all of a sudden, he, they're not buying it that he's going to fight for them. And then David looks around, and he realizes he is surrounded by his enemies. And he wins an Oscar performance. He, David breaks into the mode of being a crazy man, a lunatic. The Bible says, actually, that there's foam coming down the side of his mouth. He takes his claws. He's clawing at the doorpost. He's slobbering. He's stumbling over words. And the king finally says, why do you bring crazy men in front of me? I have enough in my country. Get rid of him. And then it says David runs for his life and finds a cave. And now his castle is a cave. Like you've got to be thinking David at some point is going to say, okay, Lord, I'm the dude, remember? I'm the one who's supposed to be anointed as the next king. And I'm living in a cave? Honestly, God, this makes no sense. I, I think we can be honest with that. We've had things in our lives where we would say the exact same thing. We, that would be a quote of ours. This makes sense. No sense. Now, something that I didn't mention earlier in the story. When David arrives at the home of the priest, somebody else was actually there too. And that man actually overheard everything that was said between David and Himalach. I don't know if he's just standing behind a wall, behind the turn, but he sees and he hears it all. And it just happens to be the supervisor, the manager, the head shepherd of Saul's flock. And, and what we discover is that as Saul is out looking for David and his army, this man named Doeg comes to Saul and he says, Saul, Saul? I, I've seen David. I, I saw him at the priest's home, Ahimelech. And, and what I saw says that Ahimelech has actually sided with your enemy, David. In fact, I saw him. He provided him with food to nourish him for the journey. In fact, I saw him equip him with weapons. He gave him a sword of Goliath. Well, what's going to happen now? I mean, Saul's already a, a madman. And now he's been given this information that the priest is even against him? Well, let's read what takes place. Look at, at 22. Picking up at verse 10. Actually, let's pick up uh, a little farther. Let's bring it down to 22. David left Gath and escaped to the cave of a... Uh, Delam, when his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there, and all those who were in distress or debt or disconnected gathered around him, and he became their leader, about 400 men. Now go to verse 6. Now Saul heard that David and his men had been discovered, and Saul's spear in his hand was seated under the taskmaster tree on the hill of Gabeah, um, with all of his officials standing around him. Saul said to them, Listen, men of Benjamin, 
Will the son of Jesse give all your fields and vineyards? Will he make all you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? Is that why you have all conspired against me? No one tells me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is concerned about me or tells me that my son has incited my servants to lie and wait for me, and he's done that today. But Doeg, the Edomite, who was standing with Saul's official, said, I saw the son of Jesse come to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitab at Nob, and Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him. He also gave him provisions and the sword of Goliath, the Philistines. Then the king sent for the priest, Ahimelech, son of Ahitab, and his father's whole family who were at the priest at Nob. And they all came to the king, and Saul said, Listen now, son of Ahitab. Yes, my lord, he answered. Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and your son of Jesse? giving him bread and a sword and inquiring of God for him so that he has rebelled against me and lies in wait for me as he does today? Ahimelech answered the king. Like he's confused and so he says, who of all the servants, who of all the servants is loyal as David? The king's son-in-law, he's the captain of your bodyguard. He's highly respected in your household. Was that day the first time I inquired of God for him? Of course not. Let not the king accuse your servant of any of his father or his family, for your servant knows nothing at all about this whole affair. So Ahimelech comes to Saul. Saul's like, he's, he's angry, and Ahimelech is confused. Like, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, David, why would you accuse David? He's your most loyal, like he's your fan. He's your biggest fan. He's been loyal to you. I, I, don't, I, I think I'm confused. Like, Saul, he's come to me many times seeking direction from the Lord. This is nothing new. And Saul's angry and he's confused. The priest says, I, I really have no idea what, you, what this whole thing is about. Like, I don't get it. I don't, I don't understand what you're, what you're saying. And look at verse 17. Then the king ordered the guards at his side, turn and kill the priests of the Lord because they have sided with David. They knew he was fleeing, yet they did not tell me. Remember I told you that sometimes when we take matters into our own hands, remember I said to you sometimes the decisions that we make, sometimes we want that control, but the decision we make can have great cost. Well, David's decision to lie is going to cost a man's life. David doesn't tell the truth. Ahimelech is confused by it all. And Ahimelech is the one who dies. But not only that, Saul looks at his guards. He says, okay, kill them all. Kill them all. Not just tell them, but kill them all. And, and, and the guards are like, uh, no, I can't, I, we're not going to do that. Uh, Saul, uh, king, we, we, would, we would kill your enemies. We'll kill those who take advantage of you, but Saul, we can't kill the priest. There's only one thing that's higher than a king. It's God. And we won't do it. But there's someone in the crowd, way in the very back, and he puts his hand up. Ooh, ooh. Look at me. Look at my hand. It's Doeg, the guy who overheard the conversation. He seizes the opportunity and says, I'll do it. I'll do it. And so Doeg, 
It says in verse 18, the king then ordered Doeg, you turn and strike down the priests so that Doeg the Edomite turned and struck, down, struck them down. That day he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod. Those who wore the priestly garments, he killed 85 of them because David lied. David lied and 85 men are killed because of it. It was a costly decision. But it doesn't end there. Saul says, you go to that town, you go to that city of Nob, you kill every man and woman, boy and girl, every infant, every sheep, goat, cattle, you annihilate it so like it never existed. All because David lied. David lied, and boy, it was a costly lie. And so what happens when they go to the town to wipe it off the map? One son of Ahimelech escaped, and he knew where David was hiding. And he went to David. In fact, it's found in verse uh, 22. Then David said to uh, Abathar, that day when Doeg the Edomite was there, I knew he would be sure to tell Saul, I am responsible for the death of your whole family. Can you imagine carrying the weight of that? The weight of like, my decision, a poor decision, has cost your entire family their life. Sometimes, Sometimes when we take things into our own hands, it feels like we're in control. It feels so good. It just doesn't often end good. Sometimes our fear pushes us to do things that we never thought we would do. Sometimes our loneliness will push us to make decisions that we thought we would never make. Sometimes our frustration pushes us over the brink. Sometimes our anger pushes us to say things that we would never normally ever say to someone. Oh, we sit here this morning, and I think all of us can identify with David when it comes to taking things into our own hands. What are you considering today? Because you're angry. You're frustrated. You're stressed out. You're fearful. You feel abandoned. You feel that you're all, you've been left to yourself. What decision? And who are you putting at risk? Because of the decision maybe you're on the verge of making. Whose future is going to be impacted because of your impulse? Do you know what David would say today? Not, not young David, obviously. Not in this situation but King David. After looking over his life, I think perhaps maybe he would just pass you a piece of paper with Psalm 9-9 written on it. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed. And I think David would say, I know this to be true. He's a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in the time of trouble. He's a refuge, not an extramarital affair, 
That's not your refuge. Not a bigger home, not a fatter salary, not a new boat, not a drug dependency. The Lord is your refuge. Not alcohol. The Lord is your refuge. In fact, if you were to continue on that chapter, Psalms 9:10 says, Those who know your name will trust in you, for you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. I think David would say, I thought I was forsaken. I, I actually thought I had been abandoned. I thought I was left on my own. I thought it was just me against the world. I thought I did have to take things into my own hands. I thought all these things, but I was mistaken. I actually was wrong. I believed a lie. I thought that this would not be happening to me unless God had abandoned me. I think David would say, don't make the same mistake as I made. Now, a thousand years later, David's greatest descendant would be born and live among us as a common man, but there was nothing common about him. He had a title as a son of man, but he was actually the son of God. And his name is Jesus. And you know what Jesus says? David quotes, the Lord is my refuge. Actually, Jesus now replaces it by saying that he is. In fact, this is what Jesus says. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Some of you here this, this morning, I think you've been running for so long. You have been trying to put matters together by using just your own hands. And Jesus says, why are you, why are you running from me? I'm a refuge for the oppressed. Come when you are weary and burdened. I'll give you rest. He says, for my yoke upon you, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I want to tell you this morning, you can absolutely trust him. You can trust him. He is your refuge. Let's pray. Father, this morning, thank you for truths from your word that we can actually understand and relate to. And though they're ancient truths, they're just as contemporary as though they were written today. Lord, I, I, I really pray. I pray for us as a family that we could learn what it is to trust you. I pray, God, for those who may be here this morning who are feeling this, these emotions of disbelief and fear and tension and stress and loneliness and abandonment and anger and 
For for those whose their blood pressure is just boiling because they're trying to do it on their own. Lord, I, I pray, oh, I pray that we would not believe the lie that would say God has abandoned me. No, no, no. God is our refuge. God's one who says, come. Are you tired of running? You're weary? You're brokenhearted? You come. And you can trust me. You can trust me with your life. Because I'm doing such a work that perhaps you can't see. But I want to tell you, I am working behind the scenes of your life to do something amazing. Father, help us to trust you, not just in the good days, but in the hard days as well. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.